Hey, it's Becca. It's Nancy. It's Brixie. And this is Insane Investigations. Hey, investigators. Welcome to our 40th episode. And it's a very special episode because even though it's our 40th episode, it's also our first anniversary. We've been insane investigating for 365 days. Which is mad to think it's about. It's mad. It feels like yesterday that you guys were chatting about true crime and just going, we should start a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's literally what it was, just a thought on our break and here we are a year later still yeah. doing it. It's mad. Yeah. It's crazy. And we have Briggsy now too. And yeah. we have Briggsy. I was with you on every step of the journey. You were, you were that right. is true. I was always there in the background. You were the <laughs> secret co-host for a while. Yeah. yeah. The unofficial co-host. Yeah. I know you're an official one. So. Yeah. So to celebrate our one year anniversary slash 40th episode, we wanted to do something a little bit different and something that everybody is like gonna know about so we decided to do Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy isn't worth celebrating by any means but we wanted to do a it's, big case. It's yeah. juicy. It's a juicy Like video. stick your teeth into everyone's heard of him. He's one of the like most notorious. Most notorious yeah. serial killers. Yeah. So we thought it would be good to kind of do our first really big serial killer now because even though we've covered serial killers i think this is our first like really really big case that we're yeah Yeah. so it will be a a few parts we thought it would be two parts maybe it'll be three parts at this point it could even be four parts so let's just just end up as the ted bundy series at this point (laughs) the ted bundy podcast we could be here on our two-year anniversary saying and this is how it all ended so (laughs) part 100 ted bundy So I think we can just get into it. So first we're going to talk about Ted Bundy's early life. So on November 24th, 1946, 22-year-old Eleanor Louise Cowell gave birth to a baby boy at the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Little did she know she wasn't giving birth to a normal boy, but she had just brought a monster into the world. Accurate statement. (laughs) She went by Louise a lot and that's what we're going to refer to her as going forward because her mother's name was Eleanor as well so it's easier for you guys to know who we're talking about. So Louise was pushed to give up her child due to the increasing stigma around bearing a child out of wedlock. Keeping her baby and raising him herself would have caused problems not only for her but also for her family from their peers. Louise didn't want to give up her child, so her parents raised him as their own. She named her baby Theodore Robert Cowell before handing him over. From then on, Louise was known by Ted as his older sister. The complicated relationship between him and his mother at the beginning of his life is where many theorists believe he became a sociopath. No one knows who Ted's father was, although many theorists believe who it could be. Lloyd Marshall was an Air Force veteran and he's named on Ted's birth certificate. However, later on, Louise stated that it was actually a sailor who was on leave in her hometown named Jack Worthington. Years later, when investigators searched for Ted's father, no military record mentioned the name Worthington, so he didn't exist. 
A lot of people believe that Ted's father was actually his grandfather, so Louise's dad. His name was Samuel Kell, but it was never confirmed or denied by anyone in the Kell family. Louise lived as Ted's older sister until he was three years old, but Ted was already showing signs of being a troubled child. His cousin claimed that while still living with his grandparents, Ted would sneak away to the greenhouse where Samuel kept his pornography collection and would read adult magazines for hours on end. His aunt Julia even said in court that she had woken one morning to find her bed covered in kitchen knives and Ted smiling at the foot of it. Oh my god. He was three. Three. That is so mad, what the hell. How easy accessible were these kitchen knives? I know, like... Along with Ted starting to seem like a danger to the family, he wasn't exactly in a mentally stable environment. Louise and Julia seemed to have no mental health issues, but their parents were a different story. Samuel posing as his father was Ted's only male role model, and later in life he said that he looked up to his grandfather and identified with him. Samuel was known citywide as an aggressive and violent drunk. His neighbours had reported him for beating his wife as well as the family dog and random cats on the street. Louise described him as a racist, sexist, imposing, and verbally abusive man. It's definitely someone you want to look up to. Yeah. 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 Eleanor Cowell wasn't exactly of sound mind either. She had suffered from bouts of crippling depression and agoraphobia, and she even received electroconvulsive therapy for it. For anybody who doesn't know what agoraphobia is, it's when you're basically afraid to leave the house because all you see is like threats to your life yeah other kids weren't his biggest fans and some even feared him one boy scout even claimed that ted snuck up behind him and hit him over the head with a stick ted told people that he liked to scare them he would also be cruel to animals People saw him pulling mice apart in the woods and later apparently he admitted to doing this and said that he would round them up and choose which ones to spare and which ones to kill. That's disgusting behaviour. That's just evil, I I think. That's That's just pure evil. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think I'd be less disturbed if he just wanted to kill them all, but it's the whole, like... He wants this control like over t- choosing yeah. who lives and who dies. Yeah. Like, it's like this like God complex. I don't it like is. It. Yeah. it really is. That's the best way to describe it, 100%. So in 1950, Louise finally decided it was best for her to take her child and move away from the chaos Ted was being raised in. She changed her name to Louise Nelson and moved to Tacoma, Washington, where she and Ted lived with her cousins. It was there that she met a hospital cook named Johnny Culpepper Bundy. Louise instantly fell in love with her father's complete opposite. Johnny was described as a sweet and caring man. Within a year, the pair were married and Bundy had adopted Ted. Over the next several years, Louise and Johnny had four more children together. Although he had adopted the name Bundy, Ted never bonded with Johnny and later in life described him as unintelligent and poor. He wanted a lot of expensive clothes and resented Johnny for not being able to afford them. He even had a deliberate public tantrum at Sears, wetting his pants when the relationship between Louise and Johnny first started. Okay, this fella gives me the ick, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, like from a young age, he was just a horror. (laughs) Just a horror, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And I think as well, this must have affected him a lot. I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think that when Louise took him Mm. and moved away, I don't think she told him 
that she was his mom. So he still thinks that she's his sister. The sister. Mm. Right, okay. Because I read he doesn't find out about his parentage until way later on. Mm-hmm. So it didn't specify in any of the research that I did, but I think by the sounds of what happens later, yeah, he was still under the impression that he was with his sister. Right, okay. And then his sister's fellow was adopting him. So that kind of pissed yeah. me off too. Yeah, true. I'd be kind of like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> if that is the case, that's a bit yeah weird. Yeah. yeah, it definitely should have been maybe explained to him. But how old would he have been at this stage? He still would have been quite young now. Yeah, well, so maybe he was three when he moved away, so he's probably five max by this point. Yeah, maybe she just thought he he wouldn't understand. Yeah, maybe. So even though it seems like it was quite hard for Ted, Louise loved her new life, being a mother of five and a wife. However, she never stopped worrying about Ted. He had a tendency to withdraw himself from the family. And Louise tried hard to keep her family together, but Ted was having none of it. He was distant, but Louise said that there was no other signs that her son was a psychopath. But I think we've listed quite a few. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't know if you were looking I think, close enough. I think there's a word for that. Denial. Yeah, yeah. literally, yeah. By the time Ted was in his late teens, he was a young offender. He had been caught shoplifting and looking through people's windows, women in particular. Anne-Marie Burr went missing from her home in Tacoma when she was only eight years old on August 31st, 1961. Her mother and sister were in the house when she disappeared, leaving only a footprint and an open window as evidence. Ted was only 14 at the time and lived a few miles from Anne-Marie's home. He had a paper route while he was living in Tacoma, so it would have been easy for him to run into Anne-Marie. Her mother believes that Anne-Marie knew her attacker as nobody heard any signs of a struggle. It seemed like Anne-Marie might have left willingly. Anne-Marie's mother wrote to Ted many years later asking for closure about what happened to her daughter, but Ted has never admitted to having any anything to do with her disappearance. Psychiatrist Dr. Dorothy Otnow Lewis examined Ted Bundy many years later and claimed that his pornography addiction beginning at such a young age, along with the incidents with the knives in Julia's bed, had some hand in his mental health. She also claimed that his grandmother, who was prone to depression, biologically predisposed Ted to having health problems. Yeah, but that's the case where everybody, like, if your parents have depression or anxiety or more There's inclined to, yeah. to have it. Yeah. Even if your mom doesn't end up having it if your grandparents did like you're still but i'm sorry there's so many people that still go about their day-to-day lives with depression and don't tear mice apart and leave knives in their aunties beds and you know end up being a serial killer yeah i think that's more the psychopath tendencies coming in there than the depression to be fair oh yeah 100 percent. like i think we're all a bit fucked in the head in one way or another jesus if all you needed was like depression we we would literally be like a serial killer caught by now (laughs) oh yeah the amount of mental health issues we've got between us i swear like literally every time we meet up it's like a therapy session (laughs) honestly though so that's not really an excuse, Ted. Sorry. We, no. We, we, we all suffer. <laughs> yeah. I love how we keep saying sorry to Ted. Yeah. No, we're not we, sorry. We're not sorry. We are not sorry to Ted. <laughs> no. Fuck you, Ted. In 1967, Ted was studying at the University of Washington, where he met a girl he called S in his diaries. 
the letter S by the way, but police gave her the alias Stephanie Brooks. For a long time Ted enjoyed watching Stephanie from afar. She was older than him and belonged to a much higher class family than Ted. At first Ted assumed that she would never go for him, but that didn't stop him from trying. He got a lift to the mountains of Seattle from her to go skiing and that began their short but intense relationship. They went on skiing trips and dinner dates in Seattle and when Brooks graduated in spring of 1968 and left Washington, Ted followed her. He earned a scholarship to study Chinese at Stanford that summer but he wanted this relationship to last and Brooks had other plans. She ended up breaking things off and urging Ted to go back to UW because she felt that Ted was unsure of himself and where he was going in life. She also suspected he had lied to her on multiple occasions. Bundy was naturally devastated as people are going through a breakup. He started to make a change by switching focus to sociology. However, when his grades dipped, he ended up dropping out of UW altogether. He ended up working as a bodyguard and driver for a lieutenant governor candidate named Art Fletcher. Fletcher lost the election and ended up moving to Philadelphia, but he brought Ted with him. While living there, Ted took classes at Temple University, which is where he ended up finding his birth records and discovered that his sister was his mother. Okay, so yeah, it was adulthood before he found out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah the whole my sister's boyfriend's just adopted me and that's probably why he also felt like he didn't fit in because yeah. obviously the other kids were like her actual kids and even though he was her kid, her kid. also he didn't know that so yeah. he was just like why am i being treated as these are my siblings when they're actually my nieces and nephews nieces and nephews yeah yeah during the time he spent at temple university he met a woman named diane edwards She was beautiful, classy, and intelligent. She also came from a wealthy family. She was everything that Ted wanted. During this time in Philadelphia, 22-year-old Ted came across Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. Both were never seen again shortly after meeting Ted. It's believed that the two 19-year-old women were the first of Ted Bundy's killings. A few weeks previous to Susan and Elizabeth's disappearance, Linda Ann Healy, who was a student at UW, vanished from her bed in the middle of the night. By the end of 1969, Ted had re-enrolled in UW and met Elizabeth Kendall from Utah. Elizabeth was divorced and worked as a secretary in the university's medical school. In 1970, Ted had started studying psychology. Two years later, he graduated from UW with a degree in psychology. Unfortunately, Diane broke up with him very shortly after they got together, and this broke his heart. He became bitter and even more antisocial than before. Apparently, to get revenge, Ted decided to become a man of high status and respect. I'm guessing to prove she made a mistake. Some investigators believe that his inability to get revenge on his unnamed first love is part of what fueled his crimes. A lot of his victims even looked like her. By the mid-70s, Ted had transformed into a social and confident man involved in political matters. He even got a letter of recommendation from the governor of Washington for working on his campaign. He was described as intelligent, handsome and charming, not the characteristics you'd normally expect to hear about a serial killer but he was well-respected and becoming more well-known in the political world. 
he then decided to enrol in law school. Karen Sparks was a student and dancer in UW studying political science. On January 4th, 1974, she was living in the University District neighborhood of Seattle when Ted followed her home. Karen did see an older man staring at her at the laundromat, but he looked away every time she caught him. Despite this, Karen was unaware that she was being followed. She assumed it was just a normal thing that women her age encountered. Karen continued going about her evening as normal before going to sleep. And just a quick trigger warning before we get into this next part, it is going to be a bit graphic, so obviously if you're not willing to hear that, just skip forward a few seconds, you know the drill. So once Ted had snuck into Karen's home, he began to beat her and smash her skull with her bed frame. As if this wasn't traumatic enough, he then took the same bed frame and penetrated her with it so violently that it smashed her vagina deep into her bladder causing it to split. This left her with severe internal injuries. Karen was living with roommates at the time Chuck and Bob. Chuck had a tendency to talk in his sleep and Karen believes that this is what had caused Ted to flee before killing her. She was left there for roughly 20 hours in a pool of her own blood before Bob found her. He assumed that Karen had slept in, but when he went to check on her, he immediately called 911 and Karen's mother. Karen spent 10 days in a coma, and when she woke up, she had no recollection of what happened to her. She suffered permanent brain damage and lost 50% of her hearing and 40% of her vision. She also had a really bad ringing in her ears for a long time afterwards and suffered from epileptic fits. Doctors insisted that Karen's family sent her to a nursing home, but they refused, especially her dad, who was determined to nurse his daughter back to health and help her walk again. Karen is one of very few people to survive an attack from Ted Bundy, but thank God her story had a happy ending. She did recover and was able to recollect what happened to her and make a statement to the police. Karen became an accountant and refused to let that one brutal night define who she is. She has opened up about what happened to her, however, all she wants now is a quiet life with her family. Karen is now 67. She still has not directly spoken to her children about the horrific things that Ted done to her because she doesn't want to be seen as a victim. She's fought really hard to overcome her fears and dark past but lives happily now with her family. I'm actually so happy for her. Me too. Like what that's... a brave yeah. strong woman. That is horrific. I can't even yeah. imagine. Yeah. Look if one thing comes out of it you know podcasts like ours it is you know shout out to the victims and survivors of these absolute monsters yeah so like good on her like everyone's heard of ted bundy but like i think very few people can actually name the victim the The victims victims. so Mm -hmm. yeah she's not a victim she's a survivor she's She's a a survivor survivor. like go karen well done don't forget the name karen sparks because she's a legend she is literally i was going i was just about to say she's a legend she's a legend yeah (laughs) Linda Ann Healy was born in 1952 and was described by many as so beautiful she could be a model. And she was. We'll link photos in our socials. She had long auburn hair, big blue eyes and a perfect smile. Linda was 21 and very popular when she attended UW, majoring in psychology. She worked with children with disabilities in her spare time and loved to help others. So this girl all but had a halo over her head. Linda grew up in upper class suburbia with her parents and two siblings. She was an above average student and 
talented musician who was full of life and self-assurance. She also did morning weather and ski reports on the local radio station. Like Karen, Linda also lived in student housing in Seattle and on January 31st, 1974, she started her day like any other. Linda got up at 5.30am and went to the radio station for her usual morning reports. After work, she went to class and had planned to attend the afternoon chorus practice on the UW campus. Linda had plans the following evening to make dinner for her parents and brother. She wanted to make them a special meal. The family was due to arrive at 6pm. So when Linda got home, she borrowed her roommate's car to go to the grocery store and returned to the house at around 8pm that evening and her and some mates went to Dante's bar, which was close to where she lived, to have a few drinks. One of Linda's roommates said that she had come to her room at around 11.30 that night to talk before going into her own room in the basement. The following morning, Linda didn't show up to work. Her usual 5.30 alarm went off and when her roommate saw that she wasn't there, she assumed that Linda had already left for work. None of her roommates heard anything the night before, so they weren't worried and just assumed that she got an early start to the day. People only started to worry when her employer called the house to ask why she hadn't gone to work. That's when her roommates called her parents. Linda's mother immediately called the police and they came to the home. Lieutenant Pat Murphy investigated her room and described it as, quote, very neat, which was strange as her roommates explained that she wouldn't make her bed if she had to go to work and her bed wasn't made the way she made it. Murphy found blood on the pillow and head area of the sheets. He also found her nightgown covered in blood around the neck. After interviewing her roommates, he was able to confirm that there were missing items from her room, such as clothes that she wore the night before, a pink satin pillowcase, her backpack, and her house keys. Her roommates also noticed that the back door was open and normally Linda would have used the side door and she'd make sure to lock it. Bob Keppel, a detective working with King County Police, said the unique crime scene continues to stand out in his memory. It appeared someone had broken into the house, attacked Linda, redressed her, made the bed and carried her off without a trace. That is so scary. Yeah. Like yeah. the fact that somebody could come in and do all that and not be noticed yeah with multiple other people in the house in the house that's what i mean like fair enough she was there alone but like the fact that there was people there and they just yeah and it sounds like he attacked her in there because there was blood yeah yeah so it's like the balls that that must have done I know. Her roommate, Monica Sutherland, told police that she recalled Linda telling her that she was in the laundromat alone on the avenue near their home when she noticed a man in an orange pickup stop and begin to stare inside. He entered the laundromat without any clothes on, messed around with one of the machines, checked to make sure that the back door was locked and then left. He never spoke to Linda or anything like that, but she was terrified, which I think anybody would be if you yeah. were just there and some naked man just walked in. Yeah. Sutherland also told police about another incident that occurred about a month before Linda vanished. Sutherland had come home and was alone and she heard the neighbor's dog start barking. When she peeked outside the front door to see a man standing on the lower step of her residence, he was holding the little dog around the neck, fiercely shaking it. She said that she ran outside and neighbours were yelling at the man and the man replied that the dog attacked him and then he just ran off. And that just reminded me of his grandfather, Samuel, who used to attack the dog the and dogs the cats and cats. Yeah. yeah. Well, he did look up to Samuel, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. 
literally what a fucking role model i know yeah. of all people to pick like you couldn't have picked the nice stepfather that came into your life later on and let him be your role model yeah detectives searched the entire home and found the connection between linda and karen sparks karen only lived 11 blocks away and as we said she had been attacked in her bed judging by the way linda's room and clothing were found it seems the same had happened to her even though the police knew that the two cases were linked they were baffled for a year until they found linda's skull along with several other bodies 23 miles east of seattle in the taylor mountain forest it would still be years before police would find out what happened to linda in October 1969, Ted met Elizabeth Kendall, who we've already mentioned earlier on, at the Sandpiper Tavern in Seattle. The 24-year-old had just graduated from Utah State and was a single mother to a two-year-old daughter. It didn't take long for the pair to become a couple, but it also didn't take long for Elizabeth to notice Ted's strange behaviours and items. The early days seemed perfect. Their first night together, Ted cooked her breakfast the following morning and they even took a trip together to Vancouver the following weekend. It only took a few months before Elizabeth had met Ted's parents and had dinner with them in his childhood home. Elizabeth eventually started finding weird items in Ted's belongings. For example, she called her friend Mary Lynn Chino to tell her that she had found a pair of women's underwear and plaster of Paris, which is plaster used for medical reasons. I think it's for like casts and stuff. Yeah. yeah. That he had stolen from a medical supply house, which yeah, I'd be like, what the fuck as well, to be honest. Yeah. Well, he was a delivery driver for the medical oh yeah um, oh okay supply house so he had access had to it but he was robbing shit yeah. from them yeah when she asked ted about this he threatened her life which i mean just a casual yeah. that's a perfectly safe healthy relationship reaction to have like, not toxic at all not a red flag <laughs> at all ask me another question and i'll bash your head in yeah, yeah. like what the fuck four months after they met the couple applied for a marriage license but a couple days later they had a massive fight and ted ripped up the document they did decide to stay together but they didn't get married elizabeth got pregnant in 1972 but she decided to terminate the pregnancy because ted was studying in law school and she needed to be able to work to help pay for his school Ted was happy with himself to have fathered a child, but he knew that they couldn't keep it. The couple stayed together, but Ted was verbally abusive with Elizabeth on a daily basis. He would fill with rage, and although he never physically abused her, he was vicious. He even threatened to break her neck when she confronted him about stealing, which he had gotten himself into the habit of doing. Despite the fact that he treated her like complete and utter shit, a quote that he had was, I loved her so much it was destabilizing. I felt such a strong love for her, but we didn't have a lot of interests in common, like politics or something I don't think we had in common. She liked to read a lot. I wasn't into reading. What so, the fuck? Delusion. <laughs> he's pure delusional. He's like, oh, I love her so much. We have zero in common, but I but love yeah. her to bits and I just want to abuse her all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what the fuck? Like, the fact that she literally had fucking terminated her pregnancy with him so she could continue to work to pay to put in true skill. Yeah. And this country was nothing but abusive towards a woman. Yeah. I feel so bad, like, for people that are just stuck. And, like, a part of you wants to say to her, like, just turn around and tell him, like, fuck you, I won't pay for your college anymore. Yeah. With people like that, you don't know. That's what I was going to say. You never know when he's going to cross the line between verbal abuse and physical abuse. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, like, you hear things of, like, women saying, oh, but he never hit me. That doesn't mean that he wasn't abusing me. Oh, no. Yeah. It's still abuse. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
On March 12th, 1974, at around 7pm, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson went missing from Evergreen State Campus on her way to a jazz concert at the library. Donna lived a bit of an unsteady life. She preferred to party and smoke weed than go to classes. She was studying witchcraft and the occult. It wasn't uncommon for Donna to go missing for days at a time, sometimes even weeks. So no one was really worried when she went missing on March 12th. In fact, she wasn't reported missing until March 18th by her friend, Deanna Ray. That's insane. Six days. Six days. Yeah. But just say sometimes even weeks. So Yeah, like she did go missing a lot. Yeah, and it's before the time of mobile phones as well. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But that's why you should always let people know where you're going and who you're going Oh, 100%. With. Yeah. Stay safe, ladies. This was the first time Ted Bundy had abducted someone outside of their bedroom, probably with the hope that it would be less easy to link all of his crimes back to him. No one knows how Ted lured her. Some people say that he promised her free weed and some people think he may have faked an injury. Ted faked injuries to lure a lot of women in due to his job as a delivery driver for a medical company. So hence that the plaster of I was Paris. Yeah. There, so that's where, where that comes in. Yeah. No one knows where Manson's body was dumped or buried. Ted didn't admit to this murder until 2019, so her body was never found. Ted claims to have cremated her in Elizabeth's fireplace, but this doesn't make a lot of sense as a crematorium would be... 1500 to 2000 degrees fahrenheit and for the rest of us that speak in celsius that's 815.5 to 1093 celsius which is a lot it's a lot that's a lot yeah a fireplace would only be a thousand fahrenheit or 537 celsius max which is still a lot but obviously not enough not not enough now i've looked into this and trigger warning to the max skip ahead but apparently for that to have worked he would have had to remove her skin and like cut up her bones into like tiny pieces for it to actually work which would have taken a very long time and it would have like stank the house out of it so elizabeth kendall would have noticed yeah yeah the smell in the house so a lot of people think that he made that up yeah yeah Makes sense. Susan Rancourt was an 18-year-old UW student on April 17, 1974, when she attended an evening advisors meeting. After it ended around 10pm, she headed back towards her dorm to collect her laundry from the laundry room and then had plans with her friend to watch a movie. Her clothes were never collected, so it is assumed that she never made it back to her dorm. Two other female students reported seeing a man wearing an arm sling and carrying books asking for help carrying them to his brown Volkswagen. The theories that Ted stumbled over to Susan and asked her for help dropping the books in front of her. Like any polite person would, Susan agreed to carry his books back to his car and when she bent over to place them in the car, Ted hit her over the head with a crowbar, put her in the car and drove off. Friends and family were instantly worried when Susan didn't return home that night. Please quickly retrace Susan's steps. 
but she was nowhere to be found. Susan's family were panicked as she was a studious girl with final exams coming up and there was no way that she would stay out all night regularly never mind in the event that all these exams are coming up yeah her father released a statement saying we believe susan was abducted because she was always a very logical and predictable person very predictable if it was one of my other children i'd say just stand by they'll be back in two or three days but not susan she was always very careful please continue to search and her parents flew a private plane over the area hoping to spot her yellow rain jacket but susan had vanished after three days of continuous searching the authorities decided to stop the operation susan's skull was found in march 1975 in ishiqua in a wooded area. She was identified the same month, but her cause of death could not be determined. I think it was because she had decomposed so much yeah, over yeah. a certain amount of time. On Monday, May 6th, 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks went missing from Oregon State University in Cornvallis, 250 miles away from UW. When she first went missing, people did consider that she may have run away as she wasn't very happy at the time. Roberta wasn't getting along with her parents and she was struggling with figuring out what she wanted to do with her life. On top of all of this, she was having relationship issues with her boyfriend, Christy, at the time. That day, she had received a call from her sister saying that their father had suffered a heart attack. Two days previous to this, Roberta had an argument with him, so this news was making her feel guilty. Later that day, her sister called to say that their father was okay and would likely survive. Even though she received this call, many believed she could have still been in quite a low state of mind. She was last spotted on her way from her dorm to the Memorial Union building and had stopped to talk to her friend Lorraine. After a quick chat, Roberta told Lorraine she was going to get a hot fudge sundae. She wasn't seen alive again. Later that night, Lorraine noticed that Roberta hadn't come back and contacted the residence advisor to report her missing. No one associated her with the other missing slash murdered girls due to the distance. But over nine months after her disappearance, her skull and jaw were found at Ted Bundy's burial site in Issaquah. When Bundy later admitted to murdering her, he said that she was lonely and depressed and that he had convinced her to go for a few drinks with him. Once they were in the car, Bundy lied and said that he needed to collect his thesis from a nearby typist. At that stage, he drove out to a secluded area where he could attack her. Not many of Roberta's friends believed Ted's story because she was known to reject men's advances, especially while in a relationship, whether they had problems or not. On May 31st, 1974, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball went to a bar she frequented called the Flame Tavern, which was close to the airport. She had attended the Highline Community College until roughly two weeks earlier and had been partying harder than usual. She stayed at the bar until around 2am when they closed on June 1st and there are different witness reports that suggest what happened to her. When her musician friend refused to take her home because he was going the other way, she was seen speaking with a brown-haired man wearing a sling on his arm. She was talking about hitchhiking home so knowing Ted he probably offered her a lift home. Similar to Donna Manson, Brenda was known for disappearing and reappearing after a binge so she wasn't reported missing until June 17th over two weeks later. 
that's insane. That's excessive. Yeah. Bundy admitted that he had abducted Brenda to throw the police off, who were currently looking for the, quote, campus killer. So she was over 250 miles away. Yeah. He said that he had consensual sex with her before strangling her while she was already passed out. Some people believe that Ted used the word consensual loosely because people think he may have raped her while she was unconscious and he was calling it consensual. Why, I don't know. But yeah, literally, I was like, why? Like, <laughs> it makes no sense. Yeah, it's but like, you just told us that you strangled her, so... Um. Yeah. Ball's skull was found by students working on a project in the woods in March 1975. One of her two temporal bones were missing, making forensics believe that Bundy struck her with the crowbar which would make his claims of strangling her false so it sounds like the things that he admitted to later on he kind of sugarcoated it yeah 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 he wasn't being truthful he was like yeah i'll admit to it but i'm gonna create a different story a different yeah. version of events then. yeah on july 14th 1974 23 year old janice arts went missing from her home in issaquah she was A juvenile court worker and her husband, Jim, was studying in California at the time. They were separated, but in regular contact with one another. Janice went to the beach by herself that day as no one was around and she didn't want to just stay at home. She left a note for her roommate saying she would be back by 4.30pm. Janice arrived at Lake Sammamish Beach and relaxed on her towel in her bikini for about 20 minutes before Ted noticed her and approached her. Ted had already met a woman that day and tried to lure her by claiming that his arm was injured and he needed help unloading a sailboat. At first, the woman, Janice Graham, agreed to help him, but when she realised that Ted wanted her to get into his car, she refused. Surprisingly, Ted said that's okay and admitted he should have been more up straight about where the boat was. When he approached Janice Ott, he decided to use the same story to lure her away, but this time he said the boat was at his parents' house in Issaquah. Janice was nice to Ted, but reluctant to go with him. Witnesses claimed to have seen him act very insistent with her. Janice agreed to go with Ted in the end, as she lived in Issaquah anyways, and Ted said he could fit her bike in his car. With that, she got dressed and started to follow Ted to the car park. Witnesses overheard him talking and Janice seemed comfortable around Ted and even asked him if she could have a ride in the boat and meet his parents. That was the last time anyone saw Janice alive. At that same time, Denise Marie Nasland, who was 19, was studying software development at night school. During the day, she worked part-time in an office, but on this day, she was at Lake Sammamish with her boyfriend, Ken Little, and another couple, Bob Sargent and Nancy, me, (laughs) Fatima, no, not actually me, (laughs) according to Nancy, me, Denise, (laughs) it's so weird having to say your own name, it really is, it really is, I I haven't met many Nancys throughout my life either, so, it's just weird hearing other people call Nancy, (laughs) anyways, Denise took four volume tablets when they arrived, shortly after 4pm, the two boys were asleep, and Denise mentioned to Nancy that she was feeling high, Denise then got up and walked towards the bathroom without saying anything. At that point, Ted had returned to the beach looking for a second victim. Denise Nasland was never seen alive again. Denise had driven the group to the beach that day and they waited around hoping that she would return. Eventually, Ken called the park ranger and reported her missing. 
Janice and Denise went missing within three and a half hours of each other. Naturally, the news of all these women going missing and being murdered spread throughout Washington, and the murderer's name had been identified as Ted. Obviously, Elizabeth Kendall would hear about this and the brown Volkswagen this serial killer was driving. When Kendall found a hatchet in his Volkswagen, Bundy waved her fears away by claiming he chopped down a tree at his parents' cabin a week earlier. But she wasn't convinced. On August 8th, 1974, Kendall called the Seattle Police Department. They kind of fobbed her off. They were like, you need to come in and fill out a report. We're too busy to talk to girlfriends over the phone. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah. That's a shitty attitude. I know. Elizabeth Kendall gave up and hung up the phone. On August 30th, 1974, Bundy left his job and moved to Utah to start law school. And naturally, the disappearances began to sharply increase in the state. Elizabeth called the King County Police, but to no avail, they said Bundy had already been cleared as a suspect. And I think one of you guys was saying earlier that they also said that it was a gold Volkswagen, not a brown one. Yeah, so Ted Bundy's car was a beige Volkswagen and they said it was a gold one, so they'd cleared him. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had like a massive list of all the beige VWs and people called Ted. Mm -hmm. On September 6th, 1974, two hunters found Janice and Denise's remains scattered across a grassy patch of land close to Issaquah. And we're going to leave you on that little cliffhanger there. That's the end of part one. We hope you enjoyed. I always feel weird saying we hope you enjoyed. We hope you found this interesting. Yeah, Yeah. hopefully you found it interesting. Hopefully it's not all stuff you've heard before and you might have learned something a little bit new this time because I think everybody's heard about Ted Bundy at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we will be back next week with part two and possibly part three but until then thank you so so much to everybody who's been listening to us for the last year and if you're only starting to listen hopefully you'll still be listening this time next year and in the meantime if you just can't get enough of us you can follow us on all of our social media at insane investigations podcast and we're gonna try post some more stuff on tiktok and instagram right now our instagram is kind of just episode announcements and like pictures from cases but we're gonna try put up some more like funny stuff on there so it's not as depressing (laughs) 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 true You can also let us know if there's anything you want us to cover on the podcast because we need some new ideas. I only have like three that comes to mind right now. So (laughs) let us know what you want to hear. Bye!